Are you a busy Ruby developer who wants to take the freelance business to the next level? Interested in working smarter, not harder? Then check out the upcoming book, Next Level Freelancing, Developer Edition. Practical steps to work less, travel more, and make more money. It includes interviews and case studies with successful freelancers who have made a killing by expanding their consultancy, developed passive income through informational products, built successful SaaS products, and become rockstar consultants making a minimum of $200 an hour. There are all kinds of practical steps on getting started, and if you sign up now, you'll get 50% off when it's released. You can find it at nextlevelfreelancing.com. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 43 of the Ruby Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. We also have Jim Gay. I'm back. You are back. We missed you. Thank you. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and I've been working hard on railsrampup.com. So if you want to learn Ruby on Rails, go check it out. All right, this week we're going to be talking about, I don't know what the title of the show will be yet, but we're going to be talking about like improving team processes, communication, et cetera, et cetera, when you're a freelancer on the team. And we we may go into like what you can do when you're new and what you can do when you've been around and earned some street cred. Um, but uh, let's just jump in and, and talk about some of this stuff. Just to kick it off, I, I I generally like to just come up with something that's relevant from my experience. I'm working on a team right now, and uh, things have actually been reasonably good over there. And um, most of the time, if I have a concern or a thought or an idea, I can just get away with uh, going to the director over the project, and he'll usually um, you know talk through it with me and then implement a change if it's a good idea. So. I just kind of want to throw that out there because sometimes sometimes the solution is pretty simple. Yeah, I've definitely done that. You know, making sure that I'm constantly talking to whoever the project manager is. Um, and yeah, if... if I, I don't know. I've kind of looked at conversations like around process and, and gone into them saying, you know, I've noticed this and I wonder about changing it to that. Just in terms of thinking like, you know, let's try it or maybe we should try it. Or if you don't want to try it, fine. I'm sure that we'll have other things. But I've never felt like even though sometimes I felt really strongly, we really ought to, uh, you know, find a better way to communicate or something like that. I, I, I never try to put my foot down and be like, look, it must be done this way. And sometimes I feel like I, I want to be the guy <laughs> who will do that because I wonder if it'll go faster or, you know, in, improve it. But I'm often, you know trying to work with them, trying to uh, figure out the best thing for the team. Yeah, that makes sense. How do you dis- how do you decide that something is worth doing with a team? Because most of these teams are different. And so what, what works for the team that you're working with isn't necessarily a good idea for the team I'm working with. For me, I, you know, I, I try to get immediate wins. Like if I notice something about the process, if I'm new to the project and I notice something about the process that's not helping, for example... I know a lot of organizations will do like a stand-up meeting and they might even say, you know, we're not really doing Scrum or we're kind of agile. And their stand-up meeting consists of standing up and chatting for like up to 45 minutes about what they're doing. And um, so one of the things that I often find is is either introducing a very quick stand-up meeting where none existed or saying, why don't we just, um, you know, if there's if there's tangential conversation, why don't we just say, hey, you know, if if you two people need to talk about this, talk about it afterwards so we can get through this. Um, and right off the bat, that's immediate win because we we're not, you know, spending thirty minutes standing around chatting about things, you know, where half of the group is is like looking away, trying to, you know, or picking up their phone and looking on Twitter or something like that while they're waiting for the, you know, conversation they don't care about to finish. Yeah, I've been in those stand-up meetings where you start out sitting down because you know it's going to be longer than 10 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's de- that's definitely a win. Um, and I've, I, you know, I've, I can't say I've seen that issue in particular where I, where I'm at. I mean, you know, Usually, somebody else on the team is also keenly aware of the fact that our stand-up meetings are going too long, and so 
we'll have an agile retrospective and when we talk through it we're like yeah our stand-ups are taking too long what do we need to change which i guess is another solution but uh it's it's really interesting to me and i'm not very good at this by the way i, I have i have almost as much tact as well i don't have any tact so when i bring up a problem i generally just say say what it is and that usually gets me into trouble so you know, let, let's let's go with a hypothetical here, you know, and say that you are working with a team whose stand-up meetings take too long. Um, how do you address that with the team? You start bringing chairs to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tongue-in-cheek way of doing it. And I think it might work for some teams. You know, Maybe sit, order sit pizza down. for them. Yeah, sit down for the stand-up. Wait a minute. The way I've done it uh, in the past is... is two ways it depends on whether or not they're doing a retrospective and they actually want to you know um improve on their process and and change over time um i'd either you know like we talked about a minute ago go to the project manager and and bring bring it up and say look this can be much faster you know i i don't need to hear the back and forth on this particular topic i just need to know you know, if I'm blocking anything on it or or if they need any input from me. And that, I think, usually helps. But then the retrospective can often turn into, like, if you're not doing it right, can kind of turn into just a bitch session. Like, everybody gets their say to complain about something, uh, which can be really bad. But if you have the right perspective, you, you know, talk about what didn't go well or what did go well and and try to figure out ways that you can improve upon it. And then you actually try to improve upon it um, and and change the way you behave, you know, the next uh, iteration. Yeah, the way that the guy that, uh, or our project manager, I guess you would call him, when we do our Agile retrospectives, which we haven't actually done for a while. Anyway, um, he gets up and he says, what's good, what's bad, and what's ugly, and, you know, good is good, bad is bad, and ugly is we never want to see this again. And And so then we talk about some of those things. I think that is somewhat useful. It just depends on the situation you're in. So, I mean, sometimes some of the stuff that gets brought up as, as bad or ugly is kind of silly. But at the same time, I mean, you just you just deal with that. And again, I have, I have no tact. So generally, I just my tact is I keep my mouth shut instead of going, that's dumb. Yeah, or the tisk, tisk, tisk. Yeah. No, I mean, it's it all comes back to like po- politics and stuff, and you know, not government politics, but kind of organization politics. And you know, if like we're talking earlier, if you're the new guy, you have no political capital. So you, even if you have a good idea and a good change, that's going to be a guaranteed win. You might not have enough capital there to actually push it through and make it go through. And so, kind of what I've done is I've actually started to kind of make a list of. Here's not necessarily the problems, but here's the things that I would change and here's the things that might be a good idea to change and why. And over time, as more of, you know, as you know, you get more experience with that team and you get more political capital, kind of go through that list and bring up things that are going to be, you know, the best win for what you can push through, you know, and like, you know, like switching from like RSpec to test unit or something might not be that huge of a win and it might cost a lot. So you might never, ever get to do that. But, you know, cutting a stand-up meeting to, you know, two minutes per person, no other people talking, that might be an easy change to get through. Yeah, one other thing that uh, that's worked out for me in the past was um, when I worked at Public Engine. So I was a full-time employee there. I wasn't a freelancer. I wasn't, a, I wasn't consulting or contracting with them. But uh, I got in there, and within the first week, um, I looked at them and said, you know, we really ought to do we really ought to do this and that. And, you know, most of it was like, we need to set up a continuous integration machine and we need to, um, we need to be looking into, you know, implementing these kinds of um, practices because we have these kinds of problems. And it worked out well because um, for one, my, um, my boss was really open to that kind of thing. And the CI thing in particular was something that he'd actually been considering. And some of the other team members had mentioned to him, and so the the fact that I had experience setting one up, you know, paid off in that way as well, you know, and I basically volunteered to to bring it forward. So if it's something like that where you can actually just jump in and more or less provide it, then um that that doesn't really impact anyone else and so those are easy changes to push through. And the others, you know, if you if you can talk to whoever does call the shots and uh you know, 
kind of gain them as an advocate one way or the other, it, it, it helps out too, because then, then it's not just you, it's, it's them, you know, pushing the idea forward and saying, and, you know, um, Chuck or Jim or whoever, or Eric or whoever, you know, whoever it is, whoever you are, you know, they can say, you know, he has experience with this. And so he's going to help us make the transition. Well, it also depends kind of what role you're filling on the team. Like if you're brought in just to be an extra developer in a seat, then you're not going to be able to make a lot of change. But if you're brought in as, you know, Jim here is an expert in XYZ and Jim proposes something about XYZ, there's going to be a bigger chance that that idea is going to be pushed through. And so that's a big factor too. And that's kind of, I look at it as like, you know, how much of a deposit of your political capital do you get just based on the role that you're coming in as? That's a really good point. Um, plus your experience, you know, the, that expert's experience in that particular thing might make that change go a lot faster than if the team without the expert decided, let's try and, you know, do that. Yeah. And, and the point that I was trying to make earlier was that sometimes you can point out, you hired me to be a developer, but I'm also an expert in this. And so I can help you get here. And sometimes that's enough for them to be confident enough to move forward with it. It's a good point. So what what if uh, what if the powers that be, you know, the the project manager or whatever, is resistant to the change that you want to make, but you know it would pay off in a big way? I, I think it depends on the change. If it's kind of uh, individual developer productivity type thing, uh, you might be able to get away with just doing like a Skunk Works style, like say they don't want to do a CI server. Well, okay, maybe you as a freelancer can set up your own CI server to do all the benefits and at least give yourself the benefits. If it's like a bigger change, like changing meetings or larger processes, you kind of can't do that, you know, unless it's like you can just have convince all the developers that, Hey, we're going to have our own stand up and keep it really short type thing. Yeah. I, um, I, I definitely agree with that. Like if, if there's some particular pain point, I, I would either try to bring it up in conversation and, continue to remind people about that pain point, you know, where if we don't make the change that I think or fully expect, you know, um, would do away with that pain, then I would, I would just kind of keep talking about it. You know, if, for example, you don't have CI very commonly, you know, you might pull somebody else's code in and it breaks something that you were working on or, somehow something goes out to production and people didn't realize that, you know, some feature that was released, you know, three weeks ago uh, is now broken because there was nothing, you know, no tests were covering it or something like that. Those are easy ways to point out that, like, look, we really ought to, you know, be tracking our writing tests and having continuous integration server. Um, and, all the better if you can set it up yourself like that and and show them look you know, you know now even the non technical people can see you know is our build green or is it red or you know what is our test coverage percentage or you know i think giving the non tech people involved in the project some insight into what's happening can really be a good thing. I mean, sometimes it's dangerous uh, depending upon what information they have and what the person is like, but if they can at least see what you're doing and and get a feel for progress or um, uh, you know how things are moving along, I think um, that's better. So you know more spread out communication. One thing in particular is like uh, I'm on a project where they have uh, exception notifier uh, in a couple of the apps and it sends out an email about exceptions and that email only goes right now to one person. So he's kind of gotten in the habit of, uh, you know, ignoring certain exceptions and, and he knows which ones are really important and, but the rest of the team has no idea. And so one of the things we're going to try and move to is, you know, some better view like, uh, Airbrake or Airbit, um, self-hosted uh, exception notification where we can actually see a list of what what has happened and just kind of spreading the knowledge about uh, what's going on with the app is is valuable mm -hmm. yeah that that's an interesting situation too because sometimes you and what we're talking about here is people problems and sometimes the people problems are oh yeah I didn't realize that there was a way to make sure that everybody knew about the exceptions or, you know, we, we just didn't have time or, you know, whatever the situation is, sometimes it's just, 
it, you know, it just never makes it as a priority and, and that's understandable. But at the same time, you know, sometimes, um, there's that, that guy that just, you know, he's real worried that he's going to lose some kind of political power or capital or whatever by giving up control of the tool. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm, I'm deliberately looking for these areas that are hard to deal with and, uh, you know, see what we can come up with as far as ways to deal with that. Yeah, that's a tough one because that's, you know, I don't know how common it is, um, but I've definitely run into situations where it seems that somebody wants to hold on to that power over a certain aspect because, I don't know, they, they just feel that that's theirs or, um, I don't know, I guess I wouldn't really want to pontificate about why people do that, but people definitely do that. I don't know, d- determining like, probably just asking questions is is the approach that I would take, you know, if, if someone is in charge of knowing more about the exceptions, well, I might as well ask regularly to find out, you know, as much detail as possible and, and kind of be in, be as annoying as possible until they are so irritated that they say, fine, I'm not gonna, you know, I'll, I'll add you to the list or, you know, and, and then once you're on that email list for the notifications, you can say, to like the project manager, hey, you know, it would probably be good for you to see what's going on with uh, with our exceptions. Maybe we could put it in a place where everybody can see it. And I think kind of, uh, I, I can't think of the um, the saying like sunlight being a you know a cure for anything, but um, just shedding more light on on the situation can be helpful. Yeah, one other way that I've seen something like that handled is basically. Um you you kind of wind up going above their heads but you don't you don't treat it that way so basically the idea is is you you go to whoever's higher up and you know you let them know hey look this is the situation we have this tool we think everybody should have access to it um it looks like somebody's a little bit possessive of it i don't really want to cause a problem there you know is there any way that we can get access to that and then let them know that we're going to treat them like the expert. So instead of instead of taking the power away, what you're saying is, is hey, this is a tool that now everybody's going to have access to and we're going to empower that guy anyway. And that way he's not losing whatever he's afraid of losing and instead, you know, is being encouraged to be an asset to the team. Yeah, I think that's a great, great approach. I mean, I'm of the mind when whenever you have any team members, if they're not, you know, performing the way you want them to, you do your best to put them in a position to perform really well. Like, you know, it's not like, oh, this guy's being a pain. Let's get rid of him. I'm so tired of it. You know, it's it's so much better for everybody to have that developer do better, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I totally agree. Give them, help, help them to feel like they, you know, have ownership and that the rest of the team relies on them, but we just happen to need more information. Yeah, I do want to point out, though, that there are, I, I've been on teams where there are people, you know, usually just one, maybe two, you know, out of the entire team that really, no matter what you do, they're just going to be a problem. And, yeah. You know, yeah. it's usually it not your call to get rid of them. Right. But you can, you know, you can definitely encourage somebody to uh, to take action. And, and a lot of times, if you wind up being in their cheering corner, even though there's nothing you can do to make them productive. In fact, there's nothing anyone can do to make them productive. You know, the fact that you keep pushing and trying to find ways to help them contribute the way that they need to is enough to highlight the fact that no matter what is going on, no matter what anybody does to try and help them out, they're not going to be any help. And yeah. and then and then the the powers that that be, you know, the the manager, whoever, then can make that decision and say, okay, well, you know, we've, we've done everything we can think of. So unless you want to change, you're probably going to wind up leaving. Yeah, that was, I was on a project where that was exactly the case. We had a developer who just, you know, wasn't productive and would kind of put up a brick wall every time you challenged him on, on the things that he was doing. And, um, we would say, all right, well, let's try him out on this aspect of the system or let's try him out on this one. And we kind of bumped him around to different tasks until finally we were at our wit's end and, you know, it wasn't my call, but the manager said, "I, you know, I think it's time." And uh, unfortunately, that's that's the case. But my perspective is always do 
you know, even when things look like they're bad, especially initially, like when you first decide like this person is causing problems, you should try to fix those problems, figure out how to how to make things better, how to have more communication and, you know, more one-on-one meetings with with his or her manager um to to make sure that behavior changes, but you know, obviously that worst-case scenario is letting somebody go but we're kind of veering off of uh processes i think yeah i think so too so one other thing i remember when i was working at one of the places i think it was when i was at pma media group was that we all we all had different musical preferences and so we'd all put our headphones on and just code and we wouldn't talk (laughs) (laughs) that can be good i mean there's not uh, it's not like every Every team has to always, you know, talk all the time. I mean, certainly getting in the zone and writing code by yourself is good. And pairing is really good. And I think there are different people respond to different things. Uh, recently, I was in the office with a you know, handful of people and we used, um, I can't remember, turntable.fm or something like that. Some website mm-hmm. where you could all, you know, select, like you could be the DJ and it just would go round robin to each person and play in their playlist. And that was awful. <laughs> um, you know, like I didn't, I, I liked maybe one third of the songs that were there and the rest of the time I was just like thinking about the song and how I did not want to listen to it <laughs> instead of, you know, focusing on my code with it as a background uh, sound. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think... I think the problem that we had is that we didn't implement another good uh, way of communicating. So if somebody had a problem or question, it was like this major interruption. Yeah, you know, um, a chat room I've found to be really valuable. Like individual chat is fine and email is fine. And, you know, code reviews on pull requests and things like that are great. But a chat room just to throw any kind of conversation in. I think it's fantastic because I hate when I see somebody working hard and they have their headphones on and they're, you know, head down and I might have a question. I'd rather just, you know, toss my question out there and hope that somebody can answer rather than trying to tap that person on the shoulder and interrupting them. Yeah, we the the team that I'm working with right now uses Skype. When I worked at Mosey, um, I ran their tech support team. They had an IRC server, you know, in-house and that's what we used there and there's definitely a lot of power to that because, yeah, if you have anything, any kind of question or whatever, you know, you can put that out there. And the other nice thing was that in a lot of cases, when I was interfacing with the engineering team, if I didn't know who to ask the question of, which happened less and less frequently the longer I was there, but what would happen is I'd, I'd ask my question and then whoever happened to see that I had said something in the the channel would then, you know, poke the right person. So they'd say their name and then ask the question or say their name and indicate that I'd asked a question. And so um, it was really easy to not just figure out what the answer was, but figure out who had the answer. That's a good way of, like you said, if you don't know who to ask, you know, just an open chat room is a, is a great way to just have it answered. But another thing that I, I like about it is, you know, I could go to you, Chuck, and say, how do I do this with this part of the system? And if Eric has never touched it, he, you know, if we're talking individually, either via a chat or email or something, individual chat, he may never learn about it by not seeing that conversation happen in front of him. So, a, a you know, developer chat, a group chat is always, um, I think, a great way to uh, make sure that the people who aren't, you know, totally focused on those particular features that you're talking about are at least exposed to the conversation around them. Yeah, you just have to make sure that you have a bot in there that can tell Chuck Norris jokes. <laughs> exactly, and post meme pictures from, uh, from the web. Yeah. I I worked on a project where we were setting up uh, Hubot inside of Campfire, and we, for some reason, everything like that worked, but anytime we tried to get it hooked up to Pivotal Tracker or anything useful, it wouldn't work. It would, like, crash on us. <laughs> so... We could have it tell jokes all day long, but then like actual productivity didn't seem to come out of the thing. That's funny. Hubot, what's the status on ticket number 19349? Did you want this picture of a cat? I can't have cheeseburger. <laughs> I think my favorite thing on that project was uh, we were trolling somebody else in the room, and every time he said something like, 
he would often tell one joke or request an image of a particular thing. We had it specifically return something, something else. So he was always like, why is this not working anymore? That's more of a distraction. That's not, that didn't really help our help yeah. our process. Our IRC bot at Mosey responded to Chuck Norris jokes. The funny thing was was that my handle was Chuck, and the trigger word for the Chuck Norris jokes was Chuck. And so whenever somebody was trying to talk to me, they'd get a response from me and a response from the bot. <laughs> nice. But anyway, that that's neither here nor there. One other thing that we've used a lot with the client that I'm working on, since a lot of us are remote, is um, we use GoToMeeting and Skype. You know, when we're in pairs, a lot of times we're on Skype. And then when we have our meetings together, we get on GoToMeeting. And it's nice to be able to see other faces, um, which is something that GoToMeeting provides up to six faces. We have more, usually more people in seats than that, but... You know, the first six people get on and you can see them moving around and talking. And uh, the other thing that's nice about that is that, you know, um, you have the high bandwidth of voice communication because sometimes I can communicate well by typing, but sometimes it's much easier for me to kind of fumble through the idea verbally and you kind of get my thought process in, in as part of the mix. So Yeah, definitely. And it's a lot faster. Um, I'm on a project now where we're using Adobe Connect. It's the first time I've ever used it. Didn't even know it existed. And um, uh, you can actually have, I think, up to 22 people in a, in the video. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is Flash-based, which is not cool. Well, it's Adobe. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, so- kind of curious to see what if Eric has anything to add on that mm. as far as getting people to talk or chat or communicate that way. I mean, for me, having, you know, just doing a Skype voice chat or even just picking up the actual phone and calling works for the most time. Um, we tried Skype screen sharing here and there, but found there's too much lag and just stuff redrawing took too long. So we actually found Google Hangouts to be really good. Um, I'd set up so one monitor would be my code and I'd be sharing that. And then my other monitor would be, um, you know, my pair's code. And so basically we he did the same thing on his end, but reverse. And so we could actually see what, what they're doing and then what we're doing and just be able to watch it by looking at different monitors. And it was a lot faster, didn't have a lot of redraw issues that Skype did. Um, I mean, that was actually really good because we were doing some performance tuning and having New Relic open in one screen while the other person's tweaking stuff like was really nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's, it sounds like a terrific idea too. We've done some screen sharing and yeah, the Skype thing didn't really work out. So I'll have to look at some of that other. I've tried doing um, remote pairing with, uh, uh, you know, shared screen sessions, um, but I've never quite made it a part of my workflow. So I'm, one of the things I'm interested in doing in the future is you know, learning a little bit more about screen or Tmux. Um, and I hear great things about the Prague Prague Tmux book. So that's probably something I'm going to be picking up to. Yeah, um, we're, we're using Tmux and, uh, and then Emacs, and that seems to work pretty well, so. So I'm curious, uh, because I've run into this a couple of times, uh, what your experience is, but um, having tickets, you know, uh, stories or whatever you want to call them, assigned to you rather than the team, the developers coming together and choosing on their own, you know, so we're working on something and I, I, as the manager, think, okay, well, I'm just going to give these three tickets to Chuck because he's worked on that before and Eric, you can take these four because you know about you know, this aspect of it. Um, have you run into that? And uh, what's your feeling on that? If the manager knows, like Eric's done the backend stuff and Chuck's done, you know, the jQuery stuff, then that could work. But for the most part, it's I, every time I've ever had that, the managers said, hey, I've given you this. Are you the best one or should I give it to someone else? And so there's kind of like a second review of it to see who should get it and who's best for it. And also based on, you know, how much time everyone has I think it's kind of good to kind of get have a developer sign up for something and make the commitment themselves. Like, I'm going to work on this issue. Problem you just have to watch for is some people tend to overcommit and take everything, and then they don't get anything done. But that's easily you could spot that pretty quickly. Yeah, I've only worked on teams where the assignments were done by the team sitting down and somebody going, "Hey, I'll take that." Uh, you know, on rare occasion, I've seen it go the other way, and I've had it go the other way for me where somebody said, I really do know you're the right person for this. Please take it. But, you know, generally, 
the other approach is what's worked for the teams that I've worked on. And then the other, the other can be the exception when there's something that has to be done, has to be done a certain way. And they know you're the person that can do it. Yeah, I've definitely had those situations. I, I find that I've at least mo- most recently found, um, you know, just assignments being done by, you know, some management team or product owner or something like that. And, you know, maybe with a little bit of discussion from the team, but I, I always like you, like your experience, Chuck, I always find that it works a lot better when the developers actually sit down and without interference from people who are not going to be doing the development, um, they choose, you know, how to do it. That's tough though. Uh, if, if it doesn't, you know, if the, if the team doesn't do it already like that, then how do you convince them that, um, no, you have to, you have to let us figure it out for ourselves, you know. Uh, that might be kind of hard for a manager to swallow. Like, no, I, I want to see who's assigned to this. I need to know. Uh, so, that's, that's kind of tough. So the thing that comes to mind for me, and this is something that um, I, I've seen in some of the teams that I've worked on, is that in some cases there's a hard deadline for a feature. So let's say that, you know, they need feature X and they need it by next week. Okay, so next Friday it's got to be done. So that gives us one week to get it done. Well, that automatically disqualifies, you know, half the team from doing that feature because there's this time constraint on it. And so when you're sitting down and picking tasks, a lot of times the team will look at, you know, somebody will say, well, I'll do that. And they'll look at them and say, no, you can't because it won't get done in time if if it's you. And that says nothing about your skill level. It's just you're not familiar with that part of the code. And we need somebody who's been in it for the last two weeks. Sure. And, and so you you make you make allowances for that. The other thing that happens is that uh and and the reason that I like allowing teams to pick tasks is that a lot of times there are I would dare say most of the time half the stuff in the backlog is stuff that nobody's done before. And not only has nobody done before, but it really doesn't make a ton of difference which section of the code you've been working in or most most familiar with because it's totally new. And uh under those circumstances I like having the team be able to select because some of the guys on the team, and I'm one of these guys, I'll go in, I'll pick the one that I think is the most interesting, which usually winds up being one of the harder ones to do. And it's like, okay, well, that looks like a real interesting challenge, and it gives me a week or two to work on it. And so then the other guys that that are more interested in, hey, you know, I just want a couple that I can just bang out. I get them done. I get a pat on the back. I get my attaboy, and then I can go and help somebody else with something else if there's time. They can pick up those kinds of tasks. And so, you know, you kind of get the best of both worlds with that. And then, like I said before, you allow the the product owner uh, to put constraints upon the stories you know, so that it meets their needs and it gets done in the the time that they need it done, but doesn't restrict the team as far as how they handle it. Yeah, I think um, the danger, at least when I think about um, having things pre-assigned, I think the danger there is that, uh, you know, like I may get my tickets and you get your tickets and I just uh, focus on mine and I kind of don't look up and pay as much attention, you know, during stand-up meetings uh, about what everybody's status is. I think it all kind of wraps together, you know, uh, I need to make sure that I'm shouting out to the rest of the team if I'm having trouble on a ticket, like, I need help, you know, you got to come in and help me, or if someone else is, I need to be aware of that, and I've got to get, you know, through my tickets, not just so I get my work done, but so I can go and help someone else, and I think when they're pre-assigned, it's easier to not be prepared to, you know, finish your ticket and then go look around and see who else needs help. Yeah. The other thing that that's nice about that too, is that I've seen the, the, you know, the ticket assignment thing work. Okay. In the sense that it's like, okay, well, you know, you, you're an expert over here. So you take all those tasks and you're an expert over here. So you take all those tasks. Well, what happens? Um, it turns out that, you know, Jim and Chuck are working on the same project and Jim takes all the, the A type of stories and Chuck takes all the B type of stories. And then somebody comes along and goes, you know, that, that Jim guy is a real smart guy. You know, I, I want him to come work for me. And so Jim leaves. Well, then, you know, whoever they bring in doesn't know anything about the A type of stories. And Chuck doesn't know anything about the A type of stories. So then what do you do? And yeah. so you, you need, you need that mix. You need that blend. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, it, 
it, it, it seems like those, that's the way it usually goes with the, the story assignment as opposed to, you know, maybe having a, a, a primary and secondary, you know, on, on those topics at least. And so it's like, okay, well, um, you know, Jim needs to spend a little more time on, on these other areas so that he understands them. And we're going to let so-and-so, uh, you know, we're going to let Eric take over, you know, the, the majority of the stories, if you're going to assign him out anyway. Well, another thing to keep in mind is kind of what stage the product's at. Like if it's at the early stage, you want to spread that around. So, you know, everyone learns and there's a lot of like the cross-pollination, but at the late stage, like if you're rushing to get to launch, pretty much getting the task done in time is more important than having two people know about a section. And that's something that, you know, a good project manager would kind of figure out and realize like, okay, we just need to crunch through 10 bugs. Chuck's really good at it. I'm just going to give him all the Chuck, let him bang through them one after another because it might even be in the exact same file he has open at the same time. Versus at the beginning of the project, you might have spread spread it around just so like, oh, you know, this way Jim can kind of figure out what's going on in there. So if Chuck is sick for a week next month, you know, Jim can step in or that sort of thing. And that's something that most people, I don't know, I don't know if it's most people don't realize it or they don't actually address it, but it's, you know, like when a project stabilizes and stuff, they kind of tend to keep their development process the same, even though the project itself has changed. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I like that, you know, you point out that there are trade-offs just like with everything else. So one other thing that, that comes to mind is sometimes you run into a pain. Um, you run into something that is just not working. And you don't know what the solution is. You don't have the experience to sit down and just go, well, you know, every other time we've seen this problem, we just solved it this way. So um, my question then becomes, you know, how do you find a good ex- good solution to a problem that you don't completely understand? Well, That's- one thing to do is, like, make sure you actually have that problem. You know, I've seen a lot of imaginary problems come up. And then, you know, if you really look at it and address it, like, even from the business point of view, it might not even be a problem. You know, it's it could be a yak that someone's trying to shave that they don't realize they don't need to shave the yak. Um, that's the first thing because if you can eliminate it completely, that's that's going to save you so much time and energy. I don't know. I mean, typically uh, prototypes are good for stuff, um, investigation stuff. I mean, basically, you, all you're trying to do is increase your like your understanding and your education and learning about the problem or what's going on. So whatever you can do to do that, that might actually get you a solution forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. You know, often people will, you know, I, I've done this in the past. I'm sure everybody has. You think like, oh, I, I need to solve it this way. And if you don't have someone else considering those um, those decisions, they, you know, someone's fresh mind might be able to point out to you, oh, did you realize that we have this over here? And, you know, it kind of obviates the need for further development or a change in the direction or, or whatever, you know, that you know, phantom problem you think exists. Are there any other situations that you guys have seen or heard about that you think, you know, might merit some discussion? Well, there's one thing I was thinking of is we've talked about trying to change things and how to change them. What do you do if everything you can think of you tried and the change still doesn't happen? I mean, what happens at that point? Uh, That's a good question. Do you start looking for a new contract? How much hair do you have left? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's really your satisfaction level. Um, you know, how desperately do you want the change to happen? And how desperately do you need that work? I don't know. I think it's a lot of weighing those options. So um, tough call. There's really, really no way to say. But if I think if, if there are people on the team who think about some particular problem the way you do, who, you know, maybe... They see they don't have tests and they need continuous integration, um, but half the team, you know, thinks it's it's uh, uh, thinks it's a good idea. The other half thinks it's a waste of time. You at least have those people, uh, you know, who could help you maybe push push forward. But if you're the only one who's raising a stink about some particular problem, then you know maybe maybe that project isn't the right fit for you, and you should start looking elsewhere. Um, it, I don't know. There are a lot of things that go into deciding that, though. Yeah, I think a lot of it really does just boil down to how much pain it's causing you. I mean, if it's annoying that they're not listening to you and it's slightly annoying that they still have that problem, but you can live with it and, heck, you're only going to be doing this for a few more months anyway. Yeah, I mean, just just stick it out. You know, if it's something that you just can't deal with anymore, 
then by all means go find another contract and and be there because uh, you know apparently either either unwilling to deal with the pain you know deal with the problem that's causing them the pain or they are not feeling the pain and you're not and you're not going to change it in either case yeah so uh what about um you know how how do you differentiate changes that you'd like to see in like management process versus development process you know is there a way you can affect change in the way a manager behaves for uh, the rest of the development team. I think that's a, a lot harder to do. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes down again to whether or not you're brought in as a consultant that's going to change the overall process on things. I mean, you know, you have agile coaches that come in and sometimes they wind up making changes to some management structure and things like that. Uh, on the other hand, if you're just brought in as a developer, I mean, most of the change you're going to be able to affect it, you know, as far as like, um, uh, process and structure and things like that is really just within the team you're in and as much influence as you can um, manage, you know, on, on the people above you, um, so to speak in, in their organization. So it, it, it gets real tricky uh, above and beyond that. I, I can say that in some instances I've had some success with basically if there's a role that I feel like needs to be filled. So for example, if it's just one guy managing a dev team and they don't really have a project manager or something, you know, I've stepped in and done a little bit of the project management stuff to make things easier. And what what's happened there is that you you I've wound up alleviating enough pain to where I've, I could look at the manager then and say, look, you know, I, I've, I've been doing the best I can here, but, you know, there are people who are trained for this that would do a 10 times better job than I am. And once they felt that pain lift, then, you know, then they're willing to go and find a project manager or, you know, add the position. Um, as far as changing where people are or what they do, that's that's really, really tricky. Even if you can clearly see that somebody belongs in a different spot to maximize their value to the team. Yeah, I mean, I don't see like a management team or management process and development team development process as being that different. I mean, it's still the same kind of thing about proposing an idea, getting, you know, making them feel the pain around it. Uh, it's different skills because you're talking to different people and they probably value different things. But uh, I mean, it could just come back to experience. I mean, do you have experience talking to people in management about management issues and getting them to make management changes? And that as developers, we might not. And that's why it might feel harder. Yeah. Yeah. And it really just depends on your reach. I, I agree that a lot of times the the management processes and the, the processes that happen on the de development team really aren't that different. Yeah, you know, one thing I'm, I was forgetting about, forgetting about is um, choosing level of effort for, you know, stories. Um, I've seen developers just choose their own, you know, story points like, oh, it's going to be this and not have any verification with the rest of the team. Um, I don't know if either of you play planning poker, but um, that's a great way to have basically peer review on your estimations um, where you each, you know, you all consider a, a story and come to your own, you know, guess about what, uh, what the level of effort will be for your story points. And then everybody lays down their, their number for what they think it will be. Uh, and then sometimes you're spot on and everybody agrees, or sometimes there's these wild differences. And, uh, if you don't have communication like that around planning for your sprint, uh, and you know, if I get some new ticket that you know uh, that Chuck has worked on all the time, and I look at it like, oh, that's that's easy, you know, um, uh, and then um, I go to implement it, and it takes me forever, and I'm way late on it, you know, it would have been probably caught if we had a planning poker session where. Chuck and Eric and I all got to, you know, throw in on what we thought uh, the level of effort would be. Well, yeah. it's more than just poker. I mean, it's, you know, it, you should always have the individual doing the work make the estimate, but you need to have the rest of the team weigh in on it. Like, you know, in your example, Chuck could say, well, no, Jim, have you considered, you know, component X over here, which will pretty much triple how much longer it's going to take you to do it. And on the other side is you have to watch out, like, you know, Jim, you might have said, like, oh, this will take me a day to do. Well, if you get sick and have to pass that issue off to someone else, the other person, one, might not have experience, might not be as skilled as you, or any number of other factors, and it might turn into a three-day estimate for them. 
And so that's whenever I do estimates, I try to do it like this is what I think I can do it, do a sanity check with the other developers. And then if stuff gets passed around, it should be re-estimated at that point. And if it means stuff gets pumped up, pushed out of the iteration, that might be what you have to do. So when I'm estimating things, I'm usually not estimating how long they're going to take. Usually I'm estimating points, which is more of a how complicated is it? Um, you know, how big is the pile of dirt is usually the, um, you know, the metaphor used. And, um, you know, as far as uh, being able to do the estimations and getting people to estimate, you know, together, I mean, we, we know the benefits of that. But all you really need to do, in my opinion, is go to whoever cares about the timeline and explain to them that if you can be consistent about the size of dirt that each story is, then they can accurately estimate, well, somewhat accurately estimate how long, how far out things are once you establish a velocity for the team. And so, you know, if it's a three point or a five point or an eight point or whatever, you know, um, most of the teams I've, I've worked with use Fibonacci numbers. That's why I'm pulling those numbers out. But uh, what that does then is then they see value. They see value in having everybody estimate because, um, if you estimate that pile of dirt and you get another story that's about the same amount of work, regardless of who does it, you know, so if I do it, it takes me four hours. And, you know, if I do the other story, it takes me about four hours, you know, um, get provided I have enough information to solve the problem, then you can kind of get that idea. Okay. You know, we're, we're getting to the point where we're getting a semi-consistent velocity and, you know, given how many points we can move through, then we can set that speed. And so then you get buy-in from the top and then they want that velocity. They want that predictability. And so then they can come down and say, look, guys, we really do need the benefit that this offers. And, and then, um, you know, then they can affect the change. Um, but usually you have to have somebody who's, who sees the, the win for them and is willing to advocate it. If, if you're just coming in and saying, this is the way we do it because we do it, then that doesn't make sense. But yeah, if you can go get a stakeholder that cares, then then that works. And and that works especially in this case where you go get that uh, that stakeholder who cares about the schedule and then you sell them on velocity. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I always try to take my time uh, in making changes. I Whenever I go on to a new project in particular, I um, even if I am hired to help simplify the process, um, I always just figure out how things are working already. You know, it's um, I, I would never want to go in somewhere and and say, all right, here's how we're going to do our stand up meetings. Um, uh, I'd still want to figure out how the team already works because if you don't do that, then they'll never trust that you're there to help them. You're just that that outside person, you know. And and once you leave, then they'll go right back to doing what they want to do, or they'll reluctantly drag their feet and uh, you know do whatever change you you suggested mm -hmm. yeah absolutely we are kind of at the end of the end at the end of our time but i am willing to entertain any other things that you guys want to bring up before we get into picks um one strategy i've used uh especially if you're new is if you're coming in as a freelancer you're probably worked with more teams and on more projects than the developers there so what I sometimes do is say, like, on previous projects, we've done stand-ups like this, or on another one, we did it like this, and basically put it out there as, here's examples of other ones I've seen and kind of the good parts of these other processes. But if you put it out there just as like that, then you could say, you know, we can pick up any of these or none of these, but these are just some ideas that we could integrate into whatever process works best for you. I found that kind of approach works good because you're not actually saying we need to change. You guys are doing stuff wrong. You're saying like, hey, you guys are doing it this way. Here's some improvements we can look at just that I've seen. They may or may not work for you, but here's a list of them. Um, and that's it, at the very least, I can get a conversation started. And sometimes you'll find out like, no, we have to do it our way because of some specific reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. I, I like uh, leveraging experience for that and then pointing out the benefits. But at the same time, it also helps when when you can get the team to decide it, which I guess is what you're saying. Yeah, like you come with them, come to them with the idea, but you leave the decision up to them. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, because if 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 they're willing to try it, then you get the right kind of buy-in. 
Um, if you get somebody to force it down their throats, then you might not, you know, you might not make the progress that you want to. All right. Well, let's get to the picks. Jim, do you want to give us your picks real quick? Yeah, I don't have many. Um, I just came across a link about a poor man's guide to managing Ruby, um, which is, uh, just an interesting look at, you know, installing your own Ruby and, and how, how it loads and all that rather than looking at, uh, RVM and RBN and all those other things. Uh, uh, there's a lot out there. And so I think it's just a good read for, um, for getting to know what, what happens. And, uh, I think that's it. I was going to pick something like GitHub, some obvious pick, but, uh, you probably <laughs> already know that. No, that's it for me. All right. Eric, what are your picks? I pick the internet. Everything on the internet is my pick. Damn. <laughs> no, um, just because what we're talking about today, I looked at a book that I've been having on my, or I've had on my desk for a couple of weeks. It's an older one. It's called It's Stream Programming Pocket Guide. On previous shows, you kind of might have heard that I don't care for a lot of the, you know, uppercase agile, heavy-ended processes. But this one I read years ago and I still keep referring to it. Nice thing is it's only like mm, 80 pages. And it kind of gives a good overview of stream programming and like the different parts of it. And I found that almost every kind of process I pulled out of this and put into whatever else I was working on ended up working good for the team and helped people out. So I'm going to pick it. It's like I said, it's a short book. You can kind of get through it in, you know, probably like one night of reading. And it's nice as kind of a quick reference just to have nearby. Yeah, sounds good. I'll have to check it out. So my picks today are my first pick is practical object oriented design in ruby it is a book by sandy metz and uh, we did an interview with her yesterday on ruby rogues and i have to say that is probably the best episode that we've done ever on the show i mean it was it was tremendous it it's also tremendous in length we wound up going about two hours um instead of the usual one I mean, sometimes I think we get up to like a, an hour and 10 or an hour and 15 minutes, but, uh, it was, it was absolutely awesome. And I encourage you all to go and check it out. It will be out next Wednesday, which this gets released on Thursday. So it, it came out yesterday. Um, and that's my only pick for today. I'm, I'm kind of low on picks. Is there anything interesting that you've been working on, Eric, that you want to talk about? Or should we just wrap up the show and say hi to uh, everybody next week? <laughs> it's a new year. I'm busy. Got a new laptop. But yeah, nothing really. Just been a lot of client work. All right. Well, then we will wrap this up and we'll talk to you all next week. All right. Take care.